We'll get into the show in just a moment, but first, Jack Hendler of Jack's Abbey is joining me on the line, and the brewery is a sponsor of this episode, so thank you to them for that. And we're talking about the brewery's Lager of the World series, and the second version has just been released. This time, it's a lager down under. Jack, welcome, and tell us about Destination Australia. Destination Australia, it's a beer we just packaged. Really excited to get this beer out. Uh, It's a collaboration with Nomad Brewing down in Australia, and we were really able to incorporate some really unique, very specific to Australia flavors uh, into this beer. Like what? So we used two ingredients that John from Nomad uh, told us about. The first ingredient was finger limes. So they're sort of elongated limes, and they have little beads of juice within the lime. So really interesting lime-type fruit that we used as well as strawberry gum. And it gives a very interesting strawberry aroma. And between the strawberry and the lime, we really got some nice fruity flavors into this beer that are definitely uniquely Australian. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Jack. Uh, You're going to be back with us at the bottom of the show to talk more about this. But in the meantime, I'm going to encourage folks to visit jacksabbey.com to learn more about this beer and the brewery. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. I fired up the phone lines again this week and called up Joel Stickrod. He's the founder of Baroque Brewing and Blending in Nashville. And we're going to be talking about his wild ales, brewing with fruit, pub ales, and his brand new tap room, something he opened up just in time for the world to get back to order. More in a moment. But first, a reminder to check out BeerEdge.com for podcast episodes, to sign up for the newsletter, and for all of your This Week in Rauk Beer and Camp Rauk Beer merch needs. Glasses, mugs, shirts, we got them. And NZ Hops is a proud sponsor of Drink Beer, Think Beer. Harvest has officially ended in New Zealand, and there are exciting hops to choose from, including Nelson Savin, Matuika, Ruwaka, and the newest hop in the lineup, Nectaron. The white wine, stone fruit, and tropical fruit notes layered with pine, citrus, and herbal notes offer a range of flavors unlike any other growing region in the world. Learn more about what they can do for your beers by visiting nzhops.co.nz or finding NZ Hops on social media. On the last day of 2019, and some of you might actually just call that New Year's Eve, I stopped by a nondescript warehouse in Nashville. Inside was a giant stage where country music acts would practice before taking to big arenas. Lights would be dialed in, the sound would be checked, and behind that stage were rows and rows of barrels. I was there to do an episode of this show with Joel Stickrod of Baroque Brewing and Blending. And in this location, which he'll talk about in a moment... It was also where the heart of his brewing project lived. And I'm not going to bore you with too many of the details, but technically the show is a mess. Batteries on the recorder died, I had to plug in, and then a microphone fell. The whole thing was a mess. And I was trying to edit it and then get it in good shape for everybody, and then the pandemic hit. And then Joel announced that he was leaving that space and opening up his own, and I wanted to get back down there but couldn't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So here we are, doing it again, this time over the phone and hopefully with decent audio quality and fewer falling mics. Joel's going to tell you about his journey, his new place, and how he approaches brewing. But what I remember from that visit is the rows and rows of barrels, more than seems safe to fit into that small space, and the flavors of his beer. And so now that he has more space and more barrels, I wanted to find out what he was excited about. Here's our conversation. You have a lot of barrels 
where you are and a lot of different things going on inside of all of them. Is there one or two or a group of them somewhere in this new location of yours that you are really excited about that you just kind of can't help but smile when the thought crosses your mind? Um, really all the sour beer is, is kind of what's, what's special to me. Um, but there's a handful of, of three-year-old sour beer at this point that is non-fruited. And there's a handful of two-year-old and three-year-old spontaneous beer that is about to be blended. It's quite exciting. What's exciting for you with that? Um, I, I, I like the idea of blending a traditional one, two, three uh, method de goose, if you would, um, for the spontaneous project. And that's a, a pretty slim percentage of the, the wild beer that we're making. Um, but now we, we just finished our third season of it. There, there's a bit of romance that comes with those particular styles. Um, when you think about the time that goes into it, when you think about you know, the attention that you have to give it when it's time to do that, where do you start process-wise? Is it is it a feeling? Is it science? Is it somewhere in between? Everything for me is done done by taste instead of science analytics and, and everything across the entire portfolio, um, not only with the spontaneous beer, but with the whole wild beer program is blended, and it's all blended by taste. Um, and we, we run one house culture and that culture is not banked anywhere. And we're inoculating with our favorite barrels and moving forward and blending funky beer with sour beer and blending neutral beer with amazing beer. How did you start your house culture? Uh, house culture came from what was my basement when I transitioned <laughs> from home brewing into, uh, all sour home brewing. At one point I had a dozen 15 gallon barrels in my basement. And it was four of that's, my favorites. That's, that's perfectly normal for a suburban house. It's perfectly normal. Um, four of those barrels are what inoculated the original 48 that I started with. And when you think about the flavors and the tastes of your house culture, I know everybody's is kind of different. Uh, that's what makes it a house culture. But what do you think is the... I don't know, the, the, the dominant flavors, the dominant aromas, um, or what do you get out of it that you hope people experience so that they, they, they know that they're getting a Baroque beer? Uh, definitely the largest challenge has been combating the acidity and dialing it down. Um, and over the course of the last four years, that's, that's something that I've been working hard to do to balance some of the acid levels that are in it. And I'm sure you've heard that answer from a lot of different people. Yeah. Um, for my house flavor, I get a lot of hay and straw and barnyard type funk from the bread that is in that culture and don't really get the stinky cheese or sweaty horse type flavors to it. I get these natural grassy flavors that are quite pleasant. When. So I guess. God, there's there's about four or five different places that I that that, that I want to go um, with this. But over the course of the four years, the the brewery and the the beer project has sort of evolved, right? Um, oh, significantly, yeah. When when what first drew you to making beers 
like you're doing the, the, the you know the, the, these wild beers, these blended beers, these uh, goose like uh, I don't know if we're using that word um, uh, out of deference or not, but uh, you know the, the 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 styles that you're making. There was yeah. two two main reasons of why I've gone went down this path, and first and foremost, I discovered this type of beer in Europe and at the time could not afford to purchase it if I could find it. But I was home brewing and said, I know how to brew. I can figure out how to make wild and sour beers at the same time. <laughs> but on a commercial level, it was formed out of necessity. Um, I was working for another brewery in town and didn't really like the distributor driven high volume work environment. And at the time I had another side job where I was, uh, I was a traveling roadie i was a sound engineer and knew that if i wanted to start my own company i had to have the flexibility of being able to go in and out of town and the only way in a commercial environment that would function is if i put beer in barrels and was able to walk away from it for sometimes weeks on end and for a while you were you were blending the two no pun intended of your beer journey or your beer business uh, and your music career as well, right? Uh, so when I first uh, came to visit you, um, your, your brewery wasn't necessarily open to the public because, or your barrel space wasn't open to the public because it was in the middle of a rehearsal space for country music musicians. Exactly. It was, it was in the middle of the company that supplies sound and lighting gear uh, for the artists that I was working for at the time. And they had a bunch of extra space and I wanted to start this project and said, can I rent a corner? And that corner turned into a hallway and that hallway turned into now a whole facility on another part of town. Um, still do work in the music industry, still travel on the weekends, uh, even with moving to 10,000 square feet in a tap room, and now 600 wine barrels. Wow. Are, are, are wine barrels your preferred vessel? Yes. Yes and no. Um, for me, it is more of a vessel than a flavoring component. Okay. Uh, it has been throughout the course of history and still to this day is the cheapest place to put liquid. And for this volume and diversity that I have of liquid, it would be astronomical to have that in stainless steel. Um, so I like barrels for that reason. It's cheap and I can store it for 18 to 24 months. Um, I also like it because if I put one brew into a stack of, you know, eight or 12 different barrels, I get eight or 12 different colors to, to basically paint with when I go into the blending process because every barrel is unique and has its own kind of culture and nuances. Um, so it, it lets the artist side develop a little bit more and, and gives me more colors at the end of the day to play with. Um, and barrels are beautiful and they're awesome when they're stacked up and building walls to your tap room and just aesthetically they're, they're amazing. I will, use more flavorful barrels as finishing barrels so i've ventured into a lot of different whiskey barrels or or rum barrels or higher end wine barrels that i'll take 18 to 24 months already fruited sour beer and round the notes out in a finishing cask much like scotch does with a sherry barrel type instance but for the bulk of the aging it's more or less a vessel so let's let's talk for a second about it's so interesting to sort of hear you just talk about wood in practical terms because I, I, I'm so used to brewers talking about it in, I don't know, romantic terms of, yeah. you know, but 
is there romance with the wood or is it really just I, get... I, I definitely I definitely have romance with the wood and there's definitely flavors that are coming from the wood um, most of them I'm purchasing is what the wine industry considers neutral barrels and over the course of 18 to 24 months especially in a non-air conditioned space and the beer is moving in and out of the barrel just like whiskey does I'm definitely drawing oak flavors from some of those and some of the white white wine barrels that I buy instead of the red wine barrels I'm definitely picking up some cultures from the wine industry that they may have gotten rid of a barrel because they're there. Um, I've, I've noticed different Britannomyces coming out of some different wine barrels that is not part of my house character, but is now another component to blend in. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always something romantic about barrels. I mean, like I said, they're beautiful. And when I was putting the taproom together at the new location, we looked around and said, we have walls. Like, why would we build walls and drywall? Up? We have walls that are stacks of barrels. And when you walk into the tap room, you are surrounded by stacks of barrels. And it is sectioned off by walls of barrels. It's a, a very aesthetically beautiful thing and a unique experience to walk into. Let's, let's talk about blending because yeah. this is, again, I, I know every brewer has their own approach to it, but... When it comes to how you approach, and, and and why don't you just pick one of your recent beers that you blended, um, and, and walk us through how your mind works when you're trying to assemble what you believe is going to be the right blend for you, so and therefore that you want to put out to the people. Blending for me happens throughout the entire life of the beer. Um Everything is open fermented in wine barrels that are standing on end. I'm brewing 20 barrel batches and that goes into 12 open top fermenters and I'll pitch different yeasts as a primary fermentation into those open top barrels. So the first part it gets blended is when it gets barreled down for its long rest. That is usually through the course of one summer. And then on the second summer, I will take different batches and blend them onto fruit. So I usually buy about a thousand pounds of fruit at a time. I do that one to two times a week through the whole course of the summer. And I'll put a citrus base on one and I'll put a Saison base on another and I'll put a Flanders base in another. And all of that is done in those same open top barrels. I put a false bottom in them, use them for punch down tanks. Um, So a lot of times I'll blend two batches together at that point. I'll take a really bright lemony citrus forward one and blend it with a funk forward saison onto the fruit type, for instance. And then it usually sits through that maceration for anywhere from six to 14 days and gets blended again, coming off of the fruit. Um, I usually try and keep varieties together, but not necessarily base blends. So over the course, when I'm brewing in the winter time, I brew different styles to kind of steer the beer in different directions so that when I'm blending onto fruit and off of fruit, I have different, you know, versions of what I can put together. And then the final blend is when it's going into the packaging tank. And sometimes I'll take a like fruit and a like varieties. And sometimes I'll take different fruit. Sometimes I'll have one barrel that really shines by itself and it might need just a touch of acid. I'll take from another barrel. Uh, most of the blends are still at a single cask size, you know, so just over 400 bottles for me. And it's really, you know, four or five times throughout the course of its life that it is blended. It's it's a large part of the process, and it's not just a one-time thing like a lot of brewers do. 
So you mentioned fruit a couple of times and we're, this is, we're, we're in the middle of a lot of different harvest seasons for fruits. And obviously mm-hmm. throughout the course of the summer, we'll be seeing more and then in, in, into the fall as well. Um, fruit, fruit wise, where's your mind these days? Um, so not only with fruit, but also with grain, Okay, we are 95% local. So at this point, almost all of our sour beer grain is coming from the state of Tennessee and everything with the exception of cherries comes from the Southeast. Wow. Um, for me, it's just as much with a relationship with the farmers or the growers of the fruit as it is the actual fruit itself. Um, so over the course of the last, I guess, four sum- summers now, I've gotten to know the orchard owners and I've gotten to know the farmers and I use a lot of estate fruit that isn't necessarily commercially available and go pick it myself and getting the same fruit from the same source, from the same plot of land every year is very important to me and diversifying the fruit is very important to me. I'll use eight or nine different varieties of peaches or four different varieties of nectarines or six different varieties of grapes. And so it's really about diverse. Um, I mentioned this before, but at the end of the day, it's it's painting. And I like to give myself as many colors to paint with and then put together a picture in the back end. Let me just back up a little bit, because there's a lot of fruit in beers these days. And uh, I know at least just because I, I pay attention to beer. Um, I get a lot of targeted ads for fruit purees uh, in my Facebook feed, it seems like, these days, and it's it's pretty annoying. But um, I, I'm, I'm – so fruit is nothing new uh, in beer, um, and people have access to, you know, these, these blended purees, that kind of thing. Talk about, like, estate farming and, you know, going to a farm and picking the fruit yourself and – what you believe that that does in benefit to your beer. The one thing when I started this project that I was very adamant about is I was going to use only 100% whole fruit in the peak of its ripeness and in the peak of its season. Um, I had made a lot of beer with purees, not only as home brewer, but also on a commercial scale. And it never turned out quite the same with a puree as it did with a whole fruit. Um, The analogy that I like to give is instead of having a, peach flavored beer at the end of the day i'm looking for something that is the sensation of biting into a peach on grandma's porch and having the juice drip down your cheeks and onto your shirt and ultimately sour beer is one of the best preservatives that there is it's a highly acidic and alcoholic environment so what you put in is what you're going to end up getting out and there will be some re-fermentation of the sugars that are in there but essentially you're preserving the flavor that you put in So by going to pick the fruit or work with the farmers, I can get the fruit at the stage of the ripeness of where I prefer it, which is generally on the overripe side. That's where the sugar is most concentrated and the flavor is the highest. Um, And putting that overripe, full flavor fruit into beer comes over a lot better in the final product as far as remembering a sensation instead of just pinpointing a flavor. There's there's such a difference between some of the fruits that are out there, like you know watermelon. I think you know is a, is a good example, or peach is a good example of you know people are used to the candied flavors of fruits mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the actual fruits themselves. 
are those conversations that you've had to have with customers in the past of like you're actually tasting the real thing and not necessarily what your taste bud memories might think you're about to taste? Surprisingly, I run in more of the conversation of this is not a kettle sour with artificial fruit in it. This is a wild sour with real fruit in it. And, and now that I have a tap room and people are coming in and drinking, you know, firsthand at my own facility, a lot of times they're looking for those oversweet, unfermented kettle sour, quick turnaround beers. And obviously what we're crafting here at Barif is significantly different than that. I mean, we're 18 to 24 months and they're wild and they're funky and they're natural. So it's more of that conversation as this may be something that you've never experienced before. Yeah. Instead of the fruit flavor that they're looking for. And when it comes to the flavor, how we process them really leads a, a big difference on that. You know, if I take a um, immersion blender and blend up the watermelon and run it into my wine press, which is, is how we process those, the free run juice versus the pressed pulp versus fermenting on the pulp and seeds gives three very different watermelon flavors. And we process it all three ways and we use them all three ways. And sometimes all three get blended together and sometimes we just use the pulp and the seeds. And, you know, one is going to give you more melon and cantaloupe type flavors and one is going to give you candied sweetness type flavors. That's so exciting, though. And are, are you finding that the same base beer works with those different processes or do you have to start to monkey around with your base beers as well? Um, there, there's one base beer that is probably the closest thing to a core that, that I have that I call Bazique, and it is a very citrus forward base beer. It's very lemony. And I'm finding that that base blended in gives its own brightness compared to some of the other ones. Um, I brew a lot of Saison as well, and that gives a lot of yeast ester to the component of the blend. Um, and then sometimes we just make some some wheat-heavy Blondale that is just very neutral and can be just about anything. But very rarely is a beer just Bazique-based or just Saison-based. Yeah. Um, they're constantly blended, you know, going on and off the fruit, and then again when it gets packaged. So... I approach the brewing aspect and the recipe develop very different because I'm not trying to brew a beer in a recreatable manner. I'm, I'm more trying to create vintages and unique blends that can't necessarily be repeated, but are going to be palatable and enjoyable every time. More with Joel in a moment, but first, thanks to the folks who help keep the mics hot here. Jack's Abbey Craft Loggers has released the second in its Logger of the World series, Destination Australia, a collaboration with Nomad Brewing made with finger limes and strawberry gum. 5% ABV and available now. Check out jacksabbey.com for more info. And if you're thinking about beer competitions and the newly announced New Zealand Pale Ale and New Zealand IPA categories, visit NZ Hops online at nzhops.co.nz or find them on social media. There you'll learn about varieties bursting with white wine, stone fruit, tropical fruit aromas, and more. Hops from New Zealand are unlike any others found on the globe. Discover them today. There's so much commercialism out there, and, and, and people obviously want you know, their beer to taste like the beer that they remember previously. Um, 
you know, and that's why you know people buy the same beer over and over and over again. Um, as as a, as a brewer, but I guess also as as a drinker, though, talk about the appeal of not always tasting the same thing year after year um, or time after time, and you know, for drinkers who may be unaccustomed to to that, you know, because all they drink is the same IPA or the same lager, or you know, whatever. Um, what's the, I don't know, culinary benefit um, that we can achieve by having something once and then maybe not again? Uh, it definitely is going to create a sense of demand for certain things um, and sometimes a false sense of demand, if you will. But there's two different types of connoisseurs that are, are coming into my facility. And one is, is the tickers and it's the beer nerds that want to drink everything they can. And they always want what is new. So obviously doing small black blends, there's always something new, but that's the type of consumer who's only going to buy it one time. And the next time they come in, they're going to look for the next blend that's available. And then there's your average Joe who happens to be walking past the brewery and say, oh, there's a new brewery. Let's pop in that doesn't know anything about sour beer. That's a whole nother conversation to have because they might be looking for something repeatable and come in on the second time, you know, a, a few weeks or a month later and say, well, you had this strawberry last time. Where is the strawberry now? And one of the largest challenges now with the tap room is balancing my menu board. At any given time, I have 20 to 30 different bottles available, and I've basically broken it down into categories of, you know, Flanders or Old Brune kind of red or brown base or grapes or berries or stone fruit or melons or hoppy and saison. And it's more of a challenge to fill those categories for me. So if somebody comes in and says, well, you had a strawberry beer. Well, I hope I have another strawberry beer for them. It might not be the exact same, yeah. but something similar um, is how I'm approaching that. And as I've opened a tap room, we're taking that same mentality to a clean beer approach or a non-sour beer approach where we're brewing lager beer, we're brewing hoppy beer, and we're brewing light and dark pub ale. And as long as those categories are full, no matter what beer you're looking for, hopefully I have something that checks that box. Was a tap room always in the plans for you? Tap room was always a goal. A goal. Um, was not sure when it was going to come to a reality. Um, up until this year, I've done this entirely by myself and let it grow naturally and organically every single year. I went from 50 barrels to 100 barrels and then 100 barrels to 300 barrels and now up to 600 barrels. So I've, I've been reinvesting and making sure that I have the liquid to support a tap room. And up until 2021, I would not have had the liquid to support. Uh, the average sour beer is 18 to 24 months is one way to describe it. But a more realistic way to describe it is it goes through two summers before it's ready. Okay. And it's, it's one summer of sitting in the barrel and souring. And then the next summer is when it gets the fresh fruit coming out of the field. Okay. Um, you know, so it's, it's a long play. I went 18 months without selling a drop of beer. That's got to be a lot of long, stressful nights. It it was a lot of long, long work nights uh, as I was, you know, on tour on the other end of it. 
and, and gone for three or four days a week and then had two or three days a week to get all the work done at the brewery by myself. So it was a lot of burning the midnight oil. Um, I was very fortunate to have the arrangement that I had at the original facility, which was in the sound company. Yeah. Um, because overhead was, was minimal for, for the original location there. And I could kind of work two jobs at the same time. I could take care of sound stuff and then I could take care of brewing stuff. And my bus left from that same facility too. So I could hop right on the bus and never have to move. Um, once the pandemic hit, obviously that industry completely shut down overnight. It was the first one to go and the last one to come back. And there was no pivoting. There was no shows. So for almost six months, I was the only one in the building and, and had free run of the place. This was a 40,000 square foot building and I had 1500 square foot on the end. And there would be weeks where I wouldn't see anybody else come and go. Um, it really allowed me to put my head down and focus and, you know, bottle everything up by myself. We did about 12,000 bottles last year and that was all bottled by hand by myself on the cheapest bottling equipment you could possibly get. Was the tap room accelerated because of the pandemic? Um, at the end of 2019, 2020, uh, right before you saw the brewery the first time, yeah. I had made the decision to yeah, I saw you about down. I, I maybe two months before the pandemic really started mm-hmm. to hit. Yeah. So I had made the decision going into 2020 to double down and fill my 1500 square foot space entirely up with barrels. And when I made that decision, I knew that 12 months later, I had to find either an expansion within the same building or another location in town. And that was solely for the fact that I had nowhere to put the bottles. Uh, every square inch of the place was filled with wine barrels. And now to scale up from 10,000 bottles to close to 40,000 of what we're looking to do this year, I had nowhere to put those extra 30,000 bottles, uh, just square foot wise. Mm-hmm. So I knew going into 2020 that at 2021, I had to either expand or move. And about halfway through the year, I'd made the decision to expand and was going to stay in the same building. And long story short, I was all of a sudden on the city's radar and they didn't want me to grow in that mixed use type environment. And every time they asked me to do something, I said yes. And then they would turn around and ask for the next thing. And it was everything from you need to put an exit in here to you need to divide this to put a firewall in to rezone the building and about the sixth time they said no i kind of realized they don't want me to do this here i need to look at what other options i have and cut my losses yeah um at that point there was another brewery here in town who had sold their brand and it happened to be where i was contracting my work at the time so i knew that they had sold their brand and sold about half of their equipment Okay. The other half of the equipment was the stuff that I needed. The stuff they sold was the stuff I didn't. I knew that their facility was going to be available right exactly at the same time that I needed it to. They needed somebody to take over their lease. So really the stars just kind of aligned and I was able to purchase the equipment that I needed and move into a facility that was already licensed, already had floor drains, already had a glycol chiller, already had a steam boiler, already had a brew house and more or less turnkey move into a 10,000 square foot facility right in the heart of Nashville. What, what, what's the brewery? Are we, are we naming it? Uh, yeah. Little Harpeth Bruin was the oh, name sure. of it. Yeah. 
Yep. And they were an all lager brewery. Yeah. And they took all their fermentation tanks out and moved it to the company that had purchased their brand. Um, there's a, a large brew house in town that is making a whole bunch of different brands under this one umbrella. Okay. And, and they had sold their brand to them. So it, it worked I'm, out I'm behind well. on this news. So this is, this yeah. is me trying to play catch up now at this point. Yeah. Um, they left us with three fifths of a brew house. We had to get very creative onto how to turn that into a functioning brew house again. Um, but we knew what we were buying. My very first hire of an employee happened to be the brewer that came from Little Harpeth. So he just stayed with the building. We joked that he never turned his keys in. And I was like, I guess I got to start paying you since you just keep showing up. Um, but very advantageous for us as a company because he knew the brew house and the building inside and out. And I was able to, and, and very fortunate to have him. And he, uh, his name is Spencer. He is a phenomenal brewer and just an absolute loggerhead. So when we started making clean beer, I was like, man, you make lagers and you're great at it. Just, I'm not going to tell you how to make them. I'm just going to tell you to make lagers. And uh, more than that, he, he's a phenomenal asset of this company. And the majority of the clean beer program, I let him run and fly with. So you get a, a, a building that has previously had a brewery in it. Um, mm -hmm. There's, I, I imagine some aesthetics that already existed, uh, but you strike me as a pretty particular guy. And also uh, knowing where you worked, where stages were being designed and presentations to consumers was uh, being considered from you know lighting to sound to you know, the backdrops and everything else in between. Um, what did you do with the space to make it your own? What, what did you want your tap room for your brand to? to be it was very important to make it feel not like it was before so that customers that had been here in the past walked in and said this is a new experience um they had very much not really built a dedicated tap room ironically there was a stage at the far end of the of the building and they were doing shows on it and as a sound guy i came in and ripped the stage out um but we <laughs> First and foremost, we, we did put a wall up on the dividing between us and the business next door. Um, it was just kind of corrugated metal, um, very industrial feel. And we did drywall over that and uh, did some, some brick at the bottom of that and a nice long bar rail and nice clean and elegant decor up above it. We built an actual built-in bar, which they never had in the past. And we sectioned off where the taproom is, which had never done in the past with walls of wine barrels. So now there's a dedicated space. It's got lower, more intimate lighting. And, you know, you're walking into what feels like a barrel warehouse because that's what it is. But it's very warm and inviting and intimate. How, how important is it for your location to be an extension of what the beers are? Oh, it, it's, it's first and foremost, you know, I mean, uh, what, what we're doing at Barrique, I feel, is very unique. And hopefully that is the first thing that the consumer says when they walk in the door is, man, I've never been any place like this. This is unique and cool. Um, it's, it's a higher-end brand. You know, they're expensive bottles that are still bottled by hand and take two years to make. And that needs to be portrayed with the not only the aesthetics of the tap room, but also the customer experience at the tap room. Yeah. And I was very fortunate to get two phenomenal bartenders that are here every shift 
and that is their full-time job. So when you come in, you know that my bar manager is going to be here. You know that my assistant bartender is going to be here. They know the brand inside and out. They can tell the story. They know where the fruit came from. They know how we process the fruit. Um, that customer experience is just as important as the look of the bottle, which is just as important with the liquid that's inside of the bottle. Yeah. So you focused on one style of beer or, you know, a, 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 a broad style, but all, all sort of within the same family. Um, and that's great when you have warehouse space where you have some barrels and, you know, you're trying to get bottles out into the world. When you have a tap room, you need diversity. You need, uh, you know, it's tough to to have just, just one thing. I mean, there's some places that do it, but... Um, sounds like you have people on the payroll so <laughs> having some other yeah. choices probably is a is, is a smart move and I was looking at your list uh, where I'm seeing some lagers I'm seeing some some pale ales uh, a west coast double IPA which uh, uh, sounds about right and some pub ales so let's let's talk about those three and your approach to them because something tells me that um, it's not just a straight up Pilsner Absolutely. Um, when we knew that we were going to venture into clean ale, which, as you said, ultimately had to be done. You know, there's a lot of consumers that are walking through the door that don't know what sour beer is. But once they're here, we want to have beer to serve them. Um, so as we started talking about making a clean beer program, we knew right away that we didn't want to do it in a generic cookie cutter kind of way. And Barrique is the the name of the type of wine barrel that we use. So it didn't make sense to make clean beer that didn't go through barriques. That's what the company is all about and always has been. So every beer that we put out still goes through a barrel at some point of its life. Um, we'll start with a lager beer. It's all primary fermented in stainless steel, uh, long, slow, cold fermentations. Uh, I mean, we're doing upwards of three weeks of primary in stainless. And then it gets barreled down into wine barrels and goes into our walk-in cooler. And it goes through a anywhere from six weeks to, uh, we've got some Oktoberfest beers in there that are going to be 18 to 20 weeks in oak in the walk-in. Oh, <laughs> you're speaking my language now. Yeah. And we have this large walk-in cooler that we didn't need all the space for. So we basically made a bunch of small lagering tanks you know, at two barrel size. And we put a whole CO2 header in there and have aspirators or cask breathers that we can have 32 wine barrels in there at any given time that has positive CO2 pressure on top of it. Um, and we're, we're rotating through them, you know, so we started with a check logger. We did a dry hop version of that. We did a um, New Zealand type logger that was very hop driven and fruity. Um, nice. and they all have this oak component to them, uh, in the Czech lager, it comes off as a honey type sweetness in the New Zealand lager. It really finishes like an oaky Chardonnay. Really? Okay. Um, yeah, they're, they're super unique and, uh, and clean and crisp, but have their own barrel age twist on them. It's been an interesting and fun challenge for Spencer and myself to, dissect backwards the component that's being added from the barrel and treat it as an ingredient because ultimately it's going to give some flavor and 
we are now developing recipes knowing that we're going to have that barrel as one of the components to it. Um, as I stated, we're now into Oktoberfest brewing and we've got a whole bunch of German lagers going. Uh, everything from Helles and German Pilsner to Marzen and Fest beer. And the one that you're going to love is a Rauk beer is in the works. <laughs> So, uh, all right, you 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 brought it up before I did. There was a picture in the This Week in Rauk Beer uh, group that went up of a smoked peach beer that you made. Yeah, that was a unique one. Um, it sounds we like actually, it. Actually, we smoked the peaches themselves and oh. got this super unique variety of, it's an heirloom peach from the south here that, a lot of times is referred to as an Indian blood peach or an Indian cling peach. And it's a, a white skin peach um, that historically was a pickling peach through the South here. Hmm. So it's not a big sweet flavor um, and it's more subtle. And we got together with some of our friends in another brewer here in town, uh, various artists brewing company. They've got a big, oh, sure. I know those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Big outdoor grill and smoker. And we got with Pat and said, man, let's grill some of these up. So we grilled about half of them, and on the other half, he said, let's just close this thing up and smoke them. And it left a very, very prominent smoky flavor to the point of when we were blending that beer, only about 20% of the smoked beer made it into the final blend. Um, it, it was that It was that pro prominent, huh? It was that prominent. And I had chosen at the time to put that on spontaneous beer, thinking I was going to make, you know, a smoked peach spawn beer. And... It, it was not the direction that I wanted it to go and it had to be blended with something. And we ended up choosing, you know, a, a pretty, um, I guess, malt and wheat driven blonde ale to cut it with. That ended up being about 80% of that blend. So obviously the spontaneous name had to go out the window because yeah. that was an inoculated barrel. But the outcome is beautiful. Earlier, you had mentioned that, um, and I, I, I want to try that, by the way, if there's still bottles, uh, uh, put one on my tab for next time I'm down in, 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 in your area, and I'll, I'll come by and pick it up. But um, the earlier you mentioned 95% of your ingredients were, were, were local um, mm -hmm. for, for your beers, but then we start talking about New Zealand hops and uh, some of these other hops that, that, that you're using. When you do so need to, on the yeah. clean beer side, we, yeah. the all the local ingredients are on the sour beer side. No, no, no. I, I, I figured that, but so yeah. that's what I was sort of curious about of having that local thought um, or that local preference. Um, is there an appeal on the clean beer side to go far flung, but to find, I don't know, like off the beaten path hops or other ingredients as well? That so it's not just. You know, oh, here's our hazy IPA with citron mosaic, that kind of thing. We, we're starting to go down that route. Um, we've, we've got talks. We haven't made it yet, but we've got talks of making a, a heritage lager to the south here, you know, with southern growing ingredients. Um, hops don't grow the greatest in the south. It's too humid yeah. and too hot down here. Um, so really grain is the aspect of where we have to play with with that. And Tennessee barley community is starting to go great. Um, there's four or five different sources that we can get Tennessee grown barley or wheat from at this point. Um, so we've been R&Ding a lot of that on the sour beer side and are going to start 
playing around with the idea of making some Tennessee lagers. Um, we just made an IPA with all Tennessee grain, which is the first one that we have done there. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been more conservative and traditional. Uh, obviously, if we're brewing German lager, we want to use German grain. And we brew with a lot of wiremen. As so let's let's jump forward because I'm mindful of your time, but uh pub ale is Yeah, the, the pub ales are pretty special. They're that's that's a, a program that I've been dreaming about since the first time I went to London when I was twenty two years old and fell in love with pub ales and the idea behind them and the history behind them. And as I dove into the history, I discovered Burton Unions. And this was back, gosh, 2009, that I discovered what this contraption was and said, man, I'd love to make beer in that someday. So when we decided to put pub ale into our program here, we wanted to do it in the most authentic and traditional way possible. So we built ourselves a Burton Union. We start fermentation in a stainless steel square. We are using Timothy Taylor yeast. We're using all Warminster English grown malt. We shipped from the UK whole leaf hops. We're using our cool ship as a hop back to separate these whole leaf hops. We bought way more firkins than anybody of our size should own. We shipped the Cadillac of hand pumps over from Sussex directly and are trying to make English style beer in the most authentic English style possible. Um, more a la how they would have in the late 1800s before the adaptation of stainless steel or artificial cooling. So I, I dig this and I'm excited to come to your place and to you know, drink deep from my cups on, uh, on this. And I imagine that there are some brewers and some other beer fans that are listening to this uh, who are similarly excited um, by this, but all of us in the back of our minds uh, if we're being honest with ourselves, you're saying you're crazy. Uh, like, oh, we know, you're going to spend know more money than you are going to bring in on this. And it, especially to the point that we're tapping new Firkins every Thursday and whatever <laughs> doesn't get drunk by Sunday goes down the drain. Um, it, can, can I ask you, and it's going to break my heart, but like how, how much have you been finding that you've been dumping so far? Um, we're selling, I would say probably two thirds of a Firkin every week. Okay. Um, we're keeping two on and our concept is that we want to have a light and a dark. So we started with an ordinary bitter and a porter. Um, just today I took out of the union, a dark mild and put it into wine barrels with a dry hop and Spencer, our brewer brewed up an extra special bitter that went directly into the union you know, behind the, behind where the mild crate came out. So those will be our next two. Um, and then, you know, 10 or 12 weeks from now, we'll brew our next go around and we're going to do a, a standard mild instead of a dark mild. And we're going to do a Northern English brown ale on the next turn of dark. Um, so we're doing, you know, about 12 firkins of each. Um, we're brewing eight barrel batches of it. So that, that leaves a little bit excess as well. We are R&Ding right now how to put that in a bag and box. And something that we have seen some other prominent English brewers in the United States pivot to during the pandemic. Um, So that'll take up the other, you know, 40% or so of the, of the batch. 
but it's all brewed and destined to be in firkins. So none of it's going into kegs. It's all artificially or naturally conditioning in the firkin. Um, and it's not something that we'll ever see distribution. There are slim to none beer engines around Nashville at yeah. this point. So it is a hundred percent in-house project. That's fun though. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm thinking like musically cause I know that that's sort of like where I know that's where you come from as well, but it, it, it almost strikes me as like, this is like your concept album. Yeah. And it, it's just as much selfishly for me and Spencer as brewers, but <laughs> the the consumers have been loving it. And, you know, the we're three blocks away from the stadium, so we get a big soccer crowd okay. that, this time of year at soccer season, and they'll come in and drink some pub ales, you know, before the soccer match. And Well, that makes uh, a hell of a lot of sense, yeah. Especially with the dark one on, too. You know, people that like, you know, porters or stouts, that that's really our only handle that we have for – a dark beer and part of why we're trying to keep one of those is dark, you know? So we've had a lot of people that come in and, and, and love porters and stouts. And even in, you know, 95 degrees outside are drinking this slightly warmer, slightly less carbonated porter on hand pump. Well, uh, I, I'll be curious to see when the stadium transitions back over to um, the Titans, if, the fans are yeah. still drinking the same thing, but um, you might see yeah, an uptick I mean, in lager. But yeah, I, I suspect that it's going to be you know slope or lagers on the football game days, and that that'll probably be what it'll transition to. We'll we'll probably have German and Hellas right at the beginning of the football season. Um. So yeah, I, I expect that as well. But all of our lagers are served on slope or We have we've got four you know, check beer faucets in house. Uh, the Lukers. Yep. Nice. That's, uh, I'm seeing more and more of those pop up these days and it's just, it's, it's a lot of fun and, uh, there's some cool things that, that, that you can do with it. Um, knowing you're a man of music, what do you like to spend in the tap room? Uh, we, we mix it all up. Um, when the tap room's open, we leave it up to the bartenders, let them play, play what they want. Um, but, but, back a house it can be just about anything it'll be hip-hop one day and it'll be you know new orleans funk the next day okay um that we we don't play that much darius rucker in the tap room okay uh we hadn't mentioned this so far but that that's who you were on tour with so yeah yep. okay yep um I mean, I, I, I imagine he's a big fan of this show, so he might be heartbroken hearing you say that. He he, he might. He uh, he told me last weekend out of the show that he, he's going to come pop in the tap room at some point. So That's he, a, he's seen it evolve over the years, and he's he's quite proud of what, what we've accomplished here on the side. That's really cool. That's that's how you start to get the the, the crowd going. Is uh, yeah, you know, you just you know, oh, Darius might stop in tonight. There was a. Uh, it just reminds me very quickly that there used to be a guy who owned the Stone Pony in Jersey, uh, for for just a couple of years, and he on like weeks that were slow, he would sort of put the rumor out of you know there might be somebody who comes on the stage this weekend, and then they'd be packed like because people heard the rumor that Springsteen might show up. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, Springsteen never showed up because he had no intention of, of, of doing it. So um, I think that guy got run out of town on a rail, uh, which was great. But um, 
yeah, but the, you know, it might work for you. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I heard Darius Rucker might be stopping by your brewery one of these days, so people, you know, should go and check it out anyway. Come um, on by, find out for yourself. <laughs> you never know who you're gonna see at Baroque's new tap room. Uh, Joel, thanks for doing the show this week. Thanks for thanks for hanging out, and I'm looking yeah, forward to thanks seeing your new space. Me. Yeah. My thanks to Joel. Nashville is a really cool beer city, and I'm excited to get back down there to start visiting again. And maybe I'll see you this fall. I hear there's some cool festivals happening. More on that soon. Where have you been visiting? Who do you want to hear on the show? And what's good in your glass? Tell me about it. I'm John Hall at BeerEdge.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L. Or I'm on Twitter at John underscore Hall. And Beer Edge is on social media as well, at The Beer Edge. And if you like smoked beers, well, we got smoke for you. Check out This Week in Rauk Beer on Facebook. You can just search for the group. And on Instagram and Twitter as well. And NZ Hops is a proud sponsor of Drink Beer, Think Beer. Harvest has officially ended in New Zealand, and there are exciting hops to choose from, including Nelson Savin, Matuika, Rewaka, and the newest hop in the lineup, Nectaron. The white wine, stone fruit, and tropical fruit notes layered with pine, citrus, and herbal notes offer a range of flavors unlike any other growing region in the world. Learn more about what they can do for your beers by visiting nzhops.co.nz or finding NZ Hops on social media. As promised, Jack Handler is back with us. Jack's Abbey is a sponsor of this episode, and so I hope you'll give them a closer look. And we're talking about the Loggers of the World series, and Destination Australia is available now. How did the partnership come about, and how did you land on this lager recipe? The partnership with Nomad Brewing was a really natural fit. They happen to also be our distributor in Australia, and we've had many conversations about brewing beer in Australia with them. One of the things that's really important to Nomad is using local ingredients. They even use ocean water for some of their beers. Now, we weren't quite willing to ship ocean water from Australia to the brewery. However, they did have some really interesting leads on other ingredients that we were able to source, uh, as we did with the finger limes and the strawberry gum. So when people taste the beer now, how do you think it presents? So in addition to using strawberry gum and finger limes, we also use a healthy amount of Australian hops. So the beer is quite hoppy with accents of lime and strawberry. And the whole beer really just comes together with a little bit of acidity from the limes as well. Well, thanks, Jack. And a reminder to check out jacksabbey.com to learn more about this beer and all of the lagers that the brewery has on offer. And again, my thanks to them for being a sponsor of the show. Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday. The BYO Nano podcast is on the 15th of every month, and a reminder to never meet your beer heroes. Nate Schweber, though, he's good. He did the music. And Jeff Quinn is okay, too. He designed our logo. I'm John Hall. New episodes of this show release every Wednesday, and that's when I'll be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>